Welcome to the show. This is Intern Pursuits Best of 2020. First up, we have Kylan Boatfield, the owner of Cold-Blooded Encounters, a business that entertains others with their reptile shows. Now, you are all about reptiles, and you've brought some in the studio with us. And we already, I wish we had done this as a behind-the-scenes thing, that giant frog you had on the table, yeah. it jumped and hit the floor. Yeah, yeah, he can, he's pretty strong. He can, but yeah, he's an African bullfrog, or uh, they're also known as pixie frogs. <clears throat> they can get up to five pounds right now. I'd say he weighs close to three, so he's not even full-grown yet, but he is uh, pretty big, pretty, pretty Look awesome at that frog. back leg. Okay, now let's Hold it up. Can you, do, jump. you gotta do like a Lion King try thing. To position you in the camera. Yeah. Yep. Oh, turn it this way. Yeah, like turn it around. The wall. Yeah. yeah. Not enough people are having nightmares. <laughs> what? Like, you mean, you, yeah, boy, that is huge. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's pretty massive. Okay, so when people eat frogs, that's the frog they must be eating. Oh, no. Maybe in Africa, but uh, we, we eat American like bullfrogs. This is an African bullfrog. That, oh, uh, I know you want to hold him, John. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and that's his pride. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So you said he came from Africa. How, how much does a frog like that cost if you're trying to buy it as a pet? Do you know? Um, in the pet trade, uh, I paid uh, about $250 for them. Some wow. people can find them for cheaper. Some people have them for more expensive. I've seen them up to $500 for these frogs, about this size. So, yeah, it's uh, pretty pricey. What does that? What does he eat? All right, he eats everything. I feed him mainly rats, and then uh, okay, I'll, live. Yeah, yeah, live like rats. little little rat pups. Like uh, that are just the babies, crawling. like just born babies. A couple weeks old. Okay. But yeah, he eats a lot of lot of rats that because they're high in protein. But he also eats. Uh, I, I like to substitute it with a lot of insects, as in like crickets and roaches and stuff like that as well. Mm. But he can eat anything. Like now, I remember when I first met you. You told me that this frog has teeth. Oh, we yeah. were talking about it off the air. So for yeah. our listeners, what kind of teeth is it? I'm picturing a full human set of teeth in his mouth. No. Um, now, he's one of the only two species of, of bullfrogs that actually have teeth. They just have, like, two teeth up top and then two teeth up, uh, uh, on the bottom of the front of their mouth, just, like, to grip their prey. And it's just, like, two fangs just sticking out. Just Are they poisonous? No, no, they're not poisonous. Hmm. But they just have a mean bite. They, they have a pretty crushing bite. I bet. Another question here about, okay, he's just like moving all over the place. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> did you get scared over there? I did. I did jump. I did jump a little bit over here. Yeah. So, okay, you told me how much he weighs, but does he have a friend? And does he like other other frogs does um, he eat frogs yeah yeah that that's about the only liking he does he likes females and he likes to eat frogs you mean just women he likes any yeah. female yeah well fe Humans? female, female <laughs> frog yeah he, he loves people he loves people but yeah he's uh he, he eats frogs yeah they're cannibals so wow. he don't have no friends because he eats whatever can fit in his mouth how? Okay, so Ayana's a little bit squeamish over here, so she's thinking he's going to come and jump on her. Oh, no. Yeah. He's a nice guy. He's just going to sit there and hang. You know, he might turn into a prince if she does come over. Oh, here. wow. Oh, yeah. How about that? 
You have to. You have to hold them now. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I can put one on my my uh, my, my fingers and then. Like a quick touch? Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> so it's like all over the place. How do they... They're in the wild. I do, how, how would... Other than, like, <laughs> hopping away, how, do they have any defense mechanisms or oh, anything? that's a good question. Yeah, the, um, really, it's just their bite, and they just try and get away as fast as possible. Like, you know, diving off into the water. They, so they'll sit real close to the riverbank. So, but yeah, that's about it. They'll, hopefully, they see their prey before it sees. I mean, yeah. I'm gonna help. He's getting excited. He's gonna do yeah. some tricks gonna, while he hops yeah. out of the box. So yeah. 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 Just so he doesn't hop out of the box, you know, I'm putting that lid on there because he was looking like he was pretty happy to be yeah. free. Yeah. He was just trying to go find a hiding spot. Really? Yeah. How how um, can he hop? Uh, how yeah. far does he hop? Yeah, he can. They they can hop about five foot. Like oh, wow. you know, when they're really trying to get away from something, or if they see prey, you know, they take off. Wow. So, yeah. Okay, I'm gonna scoot back just a little bit. <laughs> he's locked up. <laughs> he, now. He's in his cage. Uh, well, it could be. He's huge, though. He's probably pretty strong. So I'm not. You know, let's make. We'll I, I don't want to get bit by him. <laughs> but <laughs> but he's friendly. Not, all right. All he's right. friendly though. So I'm not sure how far I'm reaching with these questions, but you. Can you get warts from frogs? No, no, that's that's a myth. You can't get them from frogs. Yeah. I remember in elementary school, I won't say any names, but this girl always had warts, and it was because she said she always played in the dirt with frogs and stuff, and I was convinced ever yeah. since then. I don't think it's because of frogs. I think it's, it's the, the dirt. Is it the dirt? Yeah, it's something that's in the dirt that's some kind of a Like micro. she would play with the tadpoles and everything. I I don't think that has anything to do. I agree. It has nothing to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> skin abnormality. Maybe I don't <laughs> Sensitive skin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a pretty brave girl there that she was. She was. She was playing with that. I didn't mess with her. Okay, I, I understand. You don't want to get warts. <laughs> Frogs so, are friends. So, aside from eating, how how frequently does he get to go outside of his, his box? Um. Well, he has a pretty big enclosure, like back at home. But I mean, I also take him outside, you know, for enrichment. Uh, set the little pool up outside and let him hang out out there. Yeah. So you know, it, he doesn't get it often. Probably about once or twice a month. You know, I'll take him out. And, you know, mm-hmm. let them have some fun outside. So tell our tell our listeners what enrichment means in in reptile talk. Enrichment is just like uh, you know, just exercise and stuff that they can't necessarily do in the confinements of their enclosures. So anytime they get, you know, more area they'll always hop around more or you know, or he gets more space to swim or, you know, things just like going through the grass, you know, for snakes and lizards, like they love that. It's like, you know, making an animal feel like they're in, in their nature. habitat. Yeah. So yeah. you try and give them fun stuff to do outside the enclosure. Well, how big is this cage at your home? Uh, he, he has like, I think it's like a 30 by 20 enclosure because he'll sit in one spot the whole time. He'll sit in that one in that one hole. Or he'll get over in his water bowl, and and that's about all he does. Yeah. Oh my goodness! So is it like a, a fish tank, or is it a wire yeah, cage? You no, know, it's an aquarium. Cause, oh, okay. Yeah, aquariums are like they're they're better for them because they're glass, so they can't sit there and rub up against it like screen cages or like some metal or. That could like hurt them. That. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if he's if he's in there, does he like to be in water? 
Or does he is he a, a land frog? Um, he he likes to sit in his water around the time that like he sheds his skin, but he also like will just sit in the real moist spot of his uh, of his enclosure. So, I would say about seventy five twenty five for mostly land, hmm. but it has to be real like dang near like marsh type. So I know we we went right into the frog, but we didn't talk about why you started this business and how it all came about. And you guys are brothers. So, yes, you know, why don't you tell our listeners about because this is always about an entrepreneurial story here. So what is the story about why you created cold-blooded encounters? And just so our listeners know, these animals go to schools where there's children because none of them are poisonous, so it's not maybe it's cold-blooded as what we're thinking. Like it's going to harm us. Yeah, it's cold. They're, well, they're cold-blooded animals, but right. yeah. So uh, basically, like ever since I was you know a kid, I always liked catching uh, like snakes and lizards, everything around the house because I lived in the woods. So I would catch all the animals I could. Grew up watching like Steve Irwin and Jeff Corrin and all them. And uh, as I got older, I started to like snakes more. And the more that I started to like snakes, I liked big snakes. I was like, man, like, I want to get the longest snake species in the world. And that's a reticulated python. So I was like, okay, I'm going to get a reticulated python. And then I was like, man, I got to get a permit just to get this snake. And then in order to get that permit to have that snake, you have to have a reason. And in the state of Florida, it's for either breeding or, like, educational purposes. So I was like, okay, I'll just start an educational business and just share my love with the rest of the world and uh, just try to change some minds and change some lives. And my little brother, he's always, like, been around, like, around me when I do stuff because, you know, we grew up together. He's a couple years younger than me. And I was just like, hey, man, you're like, you got to help me do my shows and stuff because he likes to come over and hang out with the animals and stuff all the time. So it's just fun, you know, having my little brother tag along with me to go do my shows and hang out with my animals. Is your house zoned residential or commercial? <laughs> because you have a ton of animals at your place. Yeah, it's uh, it's zoned uh, residential, I guess. It's in yeah. uh, kind of a royal area, rural area. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, I, I can have all my animals and stuff. I don't really... I have my business, but I don't really have people come. It's like my private collection that I take around to, uh, like, schools, and, you know, I go to churches, and I even do, like, photo shoots and stuff with my bigger snakes. Wow. What is the longest snake? Okay, I'm not. I'm going to let you guys ask questions, too, because I'm totally monopoly. I see totally you're monopulous. interested over there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is the longest snake that you have? Uh, the longest snake I have is is my reticulated python. He's still a baby, so he's about, but he's about eight foot right now. Eight so, foot. Yeah, he's about eight, eight foot. Eight feet, guys. How, when he grows, how long is he going to be? I mean, the longest uh, snake ever recorded was a reticulated python, and it was, uh, like, over 33 foot long. Wow. How yeah, long is so your house? In captivity, they get about <laughs> 25 foot long. See, I imagine so. that, and I imagine... Did you, did you watch the movie Anaconda back oh, in the yeah. day? Yeah. That's yes. that's yeah. what I imagine. Is yeah. that what's that's, going on? No, that's what most people imagine. Those are, like, <laughs> 40, 50 foot long snakes. <laughs> they don't get that big, but... You know, I think thirty days. feet is a pretty big I, animal. I, I mean, yeah, 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 it is. That's like the hallway. He, <laughs> he won't get that big though. He'll get about 20, 25 at the max. 
Can, um, I'm curious, uh, take me through or take us through a little bit of a, like, what, what's a show like? You know, some kids lining up, you got them captive. What are you subjecting them to? That's a loaded question. What do they get to witness and see and enjoy? An encounter. Uh, just uh, uh, just a variety of animals. We can either do like a, a booth type setup, you know, as if we're a vendor. We can just have a whole row of animals uh, like on, on our table. And then uh, they can just come by and see each one. You know, we'll have, you know, snakes, a couple different snakes, you know, a couple different lizards. Um, we have a scorpion, uh, frogs. Just I'll bring about 10 to 12 different animals depending on. Who like whoever want like what they want me to bring out? They and have then, tarantulas uh, so, too. Yeah. Wow, and yeah. tarantulas. And I imagine so all the kids will hold them, or if you go to churches, the elders are going to hold. Do you, ever, do you get the do you wrap a snake around the pastor and something like that? No, not, uh, not yet. actually. Actually, yeah. Um, like a youth pastor, he did have me come out and do a show. I'll do that. He was he was all for it. Yeah, he was all for it. Right on. Okay, so what type of education? You talked about you have to have a, a license to do this, but what is the education that you have to have? Or, or are you self-taught? Did, is there a school? Do you go to zoo school? I don't know. What do you do? I mean, uh, you can do plenty of things. You can, you know, go to college for it, or you can just go be an intern uh, at, like, zoos and stuff. And But that usually requires college. But me personally, I just did all my learning like off of just like self research. So yeah, I would say I'm more self taught, but there's plenty of people out there way more educated in it than me that took those extra steps. But I do what I do, you know. So how long have you been doing this? Um, I've had cold blooded encounters for uh it's just a little over a year now. But other but reptiles, like it's been my hobby since, you know, I was a kid. Like I always had something. So but just as I grew older and that passion grew, so did my collection. Oh, my goodness. Everyone always hears the stereotype, don't work with family. And family, you know, don't mix that business and personal relationship. What do you guys think about that? It's How's great. work been? It's great. Yeah. We don't have really fight when it comes to events and business because it's business. Like, if, it's, if we try to throw some family stuff in there... It, it's not going to work because you got to focus on business and business only and then get to the family stuff right. after everything's done. It's work. That was Kylan Boatfield, owner of Cold-Blooded Encounters. Next up, we have Lakeisha Bomack. Lakeisha owns several of her own businesses, her own radio talk show blog, and has published 15 books. I worked for a clothing store my first semester in college, and I started working there because I had attended a boarding school for high school, and I really wanted to move out of the dorms when I went to college. And so I started working in a clothing store, but quickly realized that that was not my path to financial independence because I was spending more money on clothes than I was um, actually saving. So that taught me a very valuable lesson. Um, but through the years, I've worked um, in retail, financial services, um, the publishing industry, and all of those jobs prepared me to become a consultant because I learned a lot of business basics, and I've been able to apply those to my clients' um, to my clients' businesses, whether they're starting a retail um, business or if they're looking to start a bakery or what have you. There's some basic principles that are the same across. Across industries. Um, I've been consulting for um, 15 years this year. 
So it's been a very exciting journey. And about 10 years ago, I did go through a rebranding. And as we were discussing in the pre-show, I had to decide if I wanted to um, integrate my faith with my consulting. And I realized that there was no way I could do this without um, having my faith to play a large role in the work that I was doing. So um, I pray for my clients. Um, I can't do the work that I do for them without praying for them and um, just understanding like the role that our faith plays in the goals and the visions that we have. And within the past couple of years, I've also begun doing some consulting with churches. And so that ties into some of the books that we'll be discussing later in the show. So that's really interesting. I, I find that uh, people don't always talk about their faith. You know, they're afraid that they're going to offend somebody or they're, they're going to feel like, oh, well, I'm, they'll think that I'm trying to convert them. And instead of just worrying what somebody else is thinking, we should just go ahead and just say, hey, you know, my faith, you know, belief in God, it's a part of my life. And so I talk about it as openly as I do with, uh, you know, like your kids and your, your spouse. So nothing wrong right. with that totally get it. But what was interesting that you shared with our listeners is that you saw an opportunity by working with churches that you said that most of them did not really have consultants come in. And they don't always think about the church as a place. It is a business. It is there to be able to make money, pay, employ people and be able to pay those people. So when we say make money, it's not like in, in the sense of, um, what is the profit and loss statement? What is the, you know, the revenue and the margins and all of that good stuff? But yet it does come into play with nonprofits and also churches and governments. We, we have to be responsible stewards, right? Oh, definitely. And I think, you know, a lot of times we assume that because people have certain gifts that that makes them great at everything. And so a person can be a very skilled pastor and have a pastoral heart or be a great preacher and be able to orate really well, but not have great administrative skills, or they can have a vision and not be able to communicate that vision clearly to their congregation. And so having a consultant come in um, helps to assess what the strengths and weaknesses are of that church and then help them to build on those things. And that's the same thing that we do in business um, and with nonprofits, but I don't think a lot of churches have really taken the time to say like, hey, we need an evaluation as well. So so that we can be the best organization that we can be for our communities and for our congregations. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Agreed. So when you started working with a, a church, um, and I really like this whole conversation that we're having here, was it with your own church or did you, you know, reach out and another church brought you in? How did that happen? It was actually another church that brought me in. Um, they saw what I had been doing with businesses and they said, hey, you know, do you think you can come and help my church? And so I said, you know, sure. And much like working with businesses where you think that the growth strategy is going to be you need to go and get more customers, you need to go and get more people. Um, the same issue was true with churches. You, um, It was about figuring out how do we retain the people that we already have and make them more loyal to the organization so that they do word of mouth advertising for us. 
And a lot of times churches kind of miss out on that. So they're so focused on doing outreach that they're not doing um, a great job of servicing the, the customers that they already have in their congregations to the point that they go and bring more people in. So um, it was very interesting to be able to apply a lot of the business principles in a, um, a spiritual space. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. So what was, did you go to college? What was your major if you went? Yeah, so I um, got my undergraduate degree from Vanderbilt, and um, it was in political science. And following um, graduation, I actually worked on my first campaign as a campaign manager. And I'm very proud to say he is in the Tennessee um, General Assembly um, to this day. So that was definitely one of the highlights of my career working with um, Reverend Harold Love. And he's actually a pastor who ran for a state house um, position that his father had previously occupied. Vanderbilt. I've yeah. always, wow, <laughs> you, you throw that college name out there. That's those Ivy League schools. That's awesome. That's one of those places that I go, ooh, I'd like to go and tour. Tell me, tell me what Vanderbilt is like because I, I live vicariously through others. <laughs> you know, Vanderbilt was a great experience. I wasn't one of those who knew what I wanted to do with my life. And um, as I mentioned earlier, I went to a public boarding school. I'm in Alabama. We have the School of Math and Science system. And most of my friends were going to um, into engineering or they wanted to be doctors. And I really had no clue. And so I figured at that you know point that it would be best if I went to a top 25 school because you know once you kind of throw those names out there like no one really asks like you know well, what was your major or what was your GPA like they just assume that you know you know what you're talking about and it has you know served me well these past um, 20 years having that on my resume but the um this the campus is absolutely beautiful and the um the knowledge that I gained and just like the level of um I guess academic rigor that we went through has really helped me in my writing ability and my presentations and, you know, just my ability to navigate the business world. And I don't think I realized it at the time, just how prepared that experience made me for all of the things that came after graduation. Mm, that is so true. So Vanderbilt was uh, founded by family so is it a woman's school i believe it is right no no it's not it's, it's, a, it's a private yeah it's a private institution okay so um that's really interesting so how did you aside from you know working in with churches as one of your demographics what else because you and i part of the how we actually connected was the fact that you had a lot of interests i had a lot of interests and i went okay radio show gaming you know consulting firm you know, movies, I mean, in this case, videos and uh, games for Cat5 Studios, those are my things. But, like, let's talk about all of that, those interests, and how were you able to segment them and get them so that they are actual revenue streams? Um, yeah, that's really interesting. So when I actually started my business because I um, decided to have a, a baby and I wanted to be a um, stay-at-home mom, but I knew I needed to work. And so I started consulting um, and it was really just a habit where I was helping people that I knew with various projects and, you know, they would give me money, but not, you know, substantial, you know, income, but they would give me money for my services. And then I started to realize like, hey, I can make a business out of this. And I had a friend who was um, in graduate school at Vanderbilt who's working on his MBA. 
NBA, and he was consulting with one of the um, the top four firms. And I had no idea really what consulting was at the time. And so he was like, you know, I go into um, companies and I assess, you know, how their operations are, and I help them to improve their operations. And I realized at the time, and again, this was 15 years ago, that there was really no one doing that for small business owners. And so I decided that I wanted to help small business owners figure out how they could operate better and how they could scale. Because a lot of times people who start small businesses aren't able to get financing. They're not able to grow because they don't have a solid foundation. A lot of times they're just doing the best that they know how, like they had a great idea and they started a business. And so I committed myself to working with small businesses so that they could operate like a big business, even if they only want to have like, you know, five or 10 employees, they can still have like the presence of a larger corporation. So I started doing that. Um, and then it gave me the freedom to do a lot of the other things that I just really enjoyed doing. So I started my blog talk radio show um, just because I was interested. I actually started um, talking about relationships just because I was interested in the topic. And from there, I um, wrote my first book and realized like, how easy it is to self-publish. And so um, since that book, I've written, I think, a total of 15 at this point. And um so people would, you know, ask me to come and do presentations based on the books. And so that's how I got into speaking. And so now um, consulting, speaking, um, interviews, they're just all a part of the things that I really enjoy doing. And I'm blessed that I get paid to do all of that. That is so cool. <laughs> so, so you have a lot. One of the things that I had noticed is that you have a lot of automations. And we were talking about this pre-show you know, on your on your uh, social channels, but also through your websites. And we know that anything that we can make it so that it's going to be, you know, a smoother experience for the uh, user, for the customer or potential customer, it's always a win. Um, tell us about those automations. What have, what have you used and seen that's really successful? Because I bet you get to talk with a lot of businesses and help them get those types of uh, processes and 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 systems put in place to make it so that it is going to feel like a big business. Oh, definitely. And it's very interesting because I also do um, self-publishing consulting and I um, edit um, books for clients who are interested in self-publishing. And right now I'm working on um, shameless plug for one of my clients, Sterling McKinley. And he's actually writing um, his book on artificial intelligence and the role that it plays in business. And um, <clears throat> it's just really interesting as Great as I thought I was at automation and what we've been talking about, the future of automation is just so amazing. And some of the tools that I'm currently using um, on my platforms are scheduling um, apps. So Acuity, A-C-U-I-T-Y, is huge for me. Um, I use that calendar for pretty much everything. You can schedule if you want to have classes, if you want to do like 15-minute coffee breaks, if you want to schedule consultations, and it allows people to pay you through the app. So that's huge for me because it takes the guesswork out of trying to find time for people to meet with you. Um, I also use Printful, P-R-I-N-T-F-U-L.com um, for merchandise that I sell and that I recommend for my clients who want to have online stores because they do on-demand printing. So instead of you 
You know, if you want, if you have a t-shirt design, instead of you having like a hundred t-shirts in your basement, as orders come in, people are, a, you're able to go to their website and place the order and they do white label shipping. So they ship it with your label, your tags, everything on the merchandise. So if you want to do t-shirts, coffee mugs, that type of thing, Printful is a great platform for that. Um, MailChimp is great for me um, because whenever people sign up for my e-newsletter on my website, it sends them an automatic welcome email. So I'm not trying to you know, keep track of every person that subscribes to my email list. And, um, and then I think like Amazon is probably like the next biggest one, of course, for books, instead of having to ship books to every person who wants them, unless they want an autograph copy, then, you know, being able to send them to Amazon to make their purchases. And then I get paid through Amazon. So I think those are probably the top platforms that I use. That was Lakeisha Womack, author and entrepreneur. Next up, we have Ashley Hart, owner of the company She Plays. She Plays is geared toward drawing attention to women's sports leagues in an attempt to continue to overcome women's inequality. What's interesting is that you've had this 10 years of training with um, Young Life, and I think that having to fundraise and especially raise money for your own salary if you can do that, <laughs> then you can definitely uh, get money for your company. So kudos to you. You had to have learned really good selling techniques or at least how to raise money. Well, and I think you just get comfortable with talking about money. I think money is such a taboo thing for yeah. so many people, but at the end of the day, it's just a resource. And so uh, people have it and they want to do something with it. And so you just invite them into whatever you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, if you can cast that vision, then, uh, yeah, you just bring people on the team. So tell us about She Plays. That's the company. So you had this idea. What is the idea? And I know you, but a little bit more about it because I did not know there was a difference between, I'm going to throw this out there for our listeners, esports and fantasy sports. See, I don't play either, so did not know. Yeah, so the, the whole idea behind She Plays was how to continue drawing attention to women's leagues. I'm sure everyone whether you watch sports or not, know about the fight for equal pay uh -huh. across industries. Um, but definitely with the USA soccer team that's now won two World Cups, their fight for equal pay uh, has become you know national news. And I remember back in 2018 trying to find a game of one of just their league games, and it was almost impossible. Like the stream wasn't that great. It was, definitely wasn't on TV. And I just, you know, they just won the World Cup. Why are they so hard to find? And so kind of uh, out of just my own being a fan, uh, started trying to think of how or another way to bring attention, draw um, eyeballs to their league, you know, to their games, uh, because that really is what will spend sponsors to come invest in their league. And that will actually help with the fight for equal pay. And so just by doing some research, um, realized there are no real fantasy sports that center around these leagues and knowing, you know, the NFL and the MLB would not be anywhere close to where they are today if fantasy sports hadn't just kind of ballooned in the last five to ten years. So, uh, you know, why not bring some of that awareness and engagement to women's leagues is, is where it started. So we are the, uh, the first uh, U.S. site, website, that's like a hub for fantasy sports for women's sports leagues in the country. So wow. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Excited. Mm -hmm. For sure. I think that's definitely something needed. I work at a sports bar 
and we put the audio on most of the big games and I've been there for about six months now. That's the first place I've ever worked that's like pretty big on the sports and putting the audio on and they never turn on any women's sports games. Now that I think about it. So Okay. I'm sure now you're gonna go I'm back gonna and go change and that. protest. There you for go. You. I got yes. your back. <laughs> yeah. And make sure that uh, you know what channels they're on so that people will also be able to appreciate that. And maybe you could uh Say something to the women that are there in the restaurant because maybe if they ask, if the management doesn't, right, you know, respect maybe you as an employee asking, but a woman asking, maybe they will. Basketball is pretty huge. WNBA, I know that, and yeah, definitely yeah. soccer. NCAA is also about to have their. I mean, March Madness is about to start for men and women, but the women's league this year has been unreal. Um, so it's going to be a really exciting tournament. But I will say we, we try to do a watch party mm-hmm. um, every month or every other month here in Orlando. And when the U.S. Open was going on last fall, it was Serena Williams was in the final. And it was the same day that college football started when that final was. And so mm. we had we actually were at a sports bar and asked them to do the audio for tennis. Right. And it was amazing. The entire restaurant started watching the tennis and like really getting into it. Like you would hear if someone really? made a bad shot to be like, ah. Or the football. Yeah, that's all it takes. Yeah, yeah, just giving them the shot. Right. That's really interesting. So I'm going to take a little poll in the room. Nobody knew I was going to ask this. Uh, How many of you people play fantasy sports? Anybody? Okay, Steve does. Uh, How many of you people play esports? You guess? Yeah. All right. So um, I don't. Well, I can't ask you. You're all the way over there. But all right. How about you, Sherry? Does your husband? No. Okay. Uh, Johnny? Nope. Neither. Yeah. So the statistics around this is just really amazing, and that was one of the things that I had pulled up. Um, Fantasy sports, you know, it's really about uh, participants where they all get together and they pick their their dream teams, right? Okay. That's one way, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because that's the way that I've understood fantasy sports to be is like you pick, no, I want these, and then you're trying to trade your players. And these are people that people uh, or participants actually know. They're famous people, right? Not all of them from what I think I know. I don't know. In as far as like sport? who you're drafting or who's yeah, playing who your drafting. game. Who you're drafting, yes, they're the professional athletes. Those are the professionals. Mm-hmm. So that's really where you're pulling these people together, and then your team is playing against uh, somebody else's team. Okay. Just want to make sure I was actually on target with this. But from when the friends I know that play, I think, correct me, um, don't you have to know like the stats of the players pretty well to do good? Yeah, great question. And so this helps bring up a couple different types of games that we will have even. So uh, stats related, yes, that's more for the season where you're drafting a roster of players. And based on how they do in a game, you get points. So Mm -hmm. points for, you know, so there are four tackle football leagues for women in the country. I didn't even know that coming into this. Um, So if they have like yards running or yards passing, they'll get points for that. Um, Tackles or, you know, punts, yardage for punts and stuff like that. That's where the stats come in. Um, But then you also have bracket challenges. So like for 
March Madness coming up uh, in just a couple of weeks. You know, you have 64 teams that start out in a tournament and you just guess who you think continues to go to the next round until you have a champion. Okay. So that's one type of play mm. as well. And then the one that we just launched, actually, is our first game that went live uh, last week is Pick'em. And so that doesn't require stats either. It helps, you know, always the more you know, the better a shot you have. Right. But the more you know, that rainbow is <laughs> um, but, uh, but with Pick'em, it's kind of an easy introduction for people who've never played or people who maybe have played fantasy sports but don't know these leagues yet. They now can log in and every day we'll have any game that's happening that day. They can come on and pick who they think the winner's going to be. So whether that's team versus team or like in a tennis tournament, Serena versus Venus or whoever they're playing, you go on and you pick who you think the winner's going to be. You get like weekly points on a leaderboard for the month and everything. So you'll be able to do this with the Olympics, right? Yes, we are planning to hopefully do something for the Olympics. Yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Exciting. Um, you have a question? Yeah, I was thinking, is this money based? Like, are you playing to win money? Great question, again. So, and, and this is something that I know on, on the notes about the regulation. Uh, I don't know if we want to jump into that now. Oh, sure. Not. It's a free-flowing conversation. Yeah. Go ahead. So with fantasy sports, there are uh, legal precedents that deter- like that make sure that it's not gambling, mm-hmm. considered gambling. Um, and so if you want to be in every state and have people actually like internationally play, you can either have them pay an entry fee and they don't win anything of monetary value, or it's a free entry and they can win money. Okay. So pick them right now is free entry, nothing really that we're giving away. Hopefully we'll have some sponsors and some prizes that go out then. Um, for the bracket challenges, we will have prizes, again, free to enter. You could win money. Last year we did a World Cup bracket and actually gave away $5,000 wow. total in prizes. Wow. Yeah. Um, but then for the season long, um, it's going to be a $5 entry fee to get to play that sport. Um, so we'll have MPF, which is the Pro Softball League, NWSL, which is pro soccer team here in Orlando. I didn't know that. Yeah. That was a pro softball league. Yeah, yeah. It's actually got three national teams that'll be playing in the Olympics. They make okay. up three of the teams here in the league. And then uh, one of the tackle football leagues. So when you, when you pay to access that lobby, um, if the league has partnered with us, we actually give some of that revenue to the league itself. So nice. not only helping bring awareness, give but back. really trying to bring that sustainability, a new way of providing sustainability. So how is that regulated? Like, do you have to pay a special license or to the state? Or Yeah, so if we did want to do, that's like you a pay lot to enter to track and pay, get paid, that's where the regulations come in. Um, mm. And so that's where, like, DraftKings and FanDuel, there are different states have licenses. There are actually nine states that you can't do it at all. Uh Um, And the reason we're not starting with that is three of those states are big for women's sports. So the state of Washington, Arizona, and Nevada, we wouldn't be allowed in if we did that model. Wow. Um, So, yeah, but then other states have, yeah, huge licensing fees that DraftKings and FanDuel can afford because they... Right. Uh, are huge companies. I, I was watching a docu-series. I can't remember the name of it, but it was about sports gambling. And a lady who used to be a, she was a speaker, I guess, the host on a sports show, started a sports gambling business. And it was with all the regulations and the predictions and stuff like that. What That was like a huge deal, right? Big fight going on. Still is. Making it legal. Yeah, sports betting, yeah. Sports 
sketchy. I think there are how only much three money they were making and currently that you can do, and you have to be in the state to make a bet. Um, but it's it's evolving, it's opening up, and that's right. where actually a lot of these big like DraftKings and FanDuel are shifting to sportsbook because that's where you can make a ton of money. Uh-huh. They're already making a ton when of money. When you say you can make a ton of money, do, does that mean the person that's betting? Or on the players, or does that mean the company that's in charge of? Like, Both. let's clarify yeah. who is you. Yeah, company for sure gets to take more of the like. In sports betting, it's called like a rake. You get a percentage of the entry fee, and um, people are betting on all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's not like fantasy sports. You have to have at least two games that are happening with three players from each team. There's like certain regulations. Sports betting, you could say. Who's going to have the most points at the end of the first quarter? Right. It's got no, like, skill associated with it. It's just, I'm picking this, and here's my money. And, like, the know. prediction polls and mm-hmm. all the websites and stuff. Is that legal? It is in certain regulated. states. Yeah, yeah. heavily okay. regulated. But opening up more and more. And, um, I mean, I think it's really exciting. I think it's really fun and something that's not been brought to women's leagues either because you can play fantasy sports – set your lineup, go watch the games, and that's really it. But with different kinds of sports betting, you can be in the game and still have games to play. If that makes So, like, you're mm-hmm. watching a game, and before halftime, you can still be making bets. Oh, got it, yes. Yeah. And so switch up your bet and all the that. The engagement is constant almost. Okay. Yeah. Would um, I like gymnastics. Would gymnastics be a sport that is uh, – You totally could put it on there, yeah. yeah. I mean, college and – they Olympics. Have Olympics for sure. Um, they have, I don't know about the sports betting with the Olympics. I'm sure it is out no. there, but I think that's mm. part of that. Yeah, so, I don't think that's that the controversial. Black yeah. websites. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they get in trouble for that. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I think that world championships and all sorts of stuff you could do, uh, fantasy and sports betting. But yeah, our, our focus is fantasy. We are doing fantasy, not crossing into sports betting. Volleyball. Yet. Volleyball, we actually do. There's a pro league, the AVP. Uh, they start in May, and we will have them on our site. And baseball, softball, baseball. There, are, there is no pro baseball league, but there is a softball NPF National Pro Fast Pitch. They've partnered with us for this year, so we are their oh, official nice. fantasy provider. Yeah, and you're slaying it with all of your partnerships. Congratulations! Yeah. Thank you, thank you. It's uh, it really is exciting. I think for people in the industry, so uh, we're excited to bring it uh, to the forefront. And yeah. I'm sure they want the recognition too. And you seem pretty passionate about it, so why not? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's cool. I appreciate that. I hope I, I come across as passionate. No, I really you do. Am. Yeah. You're oh, yeah. into yeah. it. I can tell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, part, part sports fan. Um, you mentioned a couple of the uh, leagues, and when I was doing some research on that, DraftKings, and then the other one is FanDuel. But uh, when you and I were talking before the show started, I was – sharing with you it says it's a one billion dollar um valuation of the company and what was the statistic that you told me it was like three billion it's a three billion dollar industry yeah. yeah um so those are the two biggest companies for daily fantasy sports yeah. espn and yahoo are big for like the season long friend friends and family stuff um but yeah 59 million people play so that's like one in five people that was Ashley Hart with She Plays. Next up, we have Milani Hawk, who has made the most of her Airbnb business. I remember 
that there's some kind of a law, I'll say it's a law or a tax, uh, tax deduction. And you have to be careful with that kind of uh, stuff is what I understood. I really don't know Definitely. enough about it to speak, speak about it because you can own a place, yeah. but then when you turn around and you're renting it out, like how you would be doing, you're renting a house and then you're renting it out to somebody else. Is there anything, um, and you may not know, <laughs> that's okay, uh, tax wise yeah. that you have to be careful about? Does that? Good question. Good question. There's, there's, tax wise, but also just pure, um, like pro, like they don't, they don't allow it in some places. So you have to be smart about it. You have to look at the cities that are actually allowing it. Like in Raleigh, they recently passed something that you have to, you know, it, it could be a budget. So we won't just talk about Raleigh, but maybe you have to live in the house for six months out of the year. Maybe yeah, you have that's to live it. in the house all the time and you can rent out a room you know, so there's all different things or, but sometimes people hear that and they're like, oh yeah, can't do it. No, mm. like figure out what the rules are for me, because I knew Raleigh had been talking about doing that for about five years. So I always knew, okay, so don't go in Raleigh. But my first few properties were right around Raleigh because I knew people wanted to visit Raleigh. And so just be smart about it and do your research of what cities allow it, which if you have an HOA, which HOAs allow it, um, try mm. to find properties that don't have HOAs. Um, or like in Asheville, um, you have to have a permit and I, I hate it. So I, I teach an online course and I coach people on how to uh, get into Airbnb investing and how to step-by-step -step go. And like, it makes me sad when some of my students are like, oh yeah, I looked and they, you have, they require a permit and I'm like, okay. And, and yeah, like, well, so that, why is that a I'm problem? Like, well, right? Look? Yeah. Like, why is that a problem? Well, I don't know. And I was like, how much does it cost? Well, I don't know. Well, let's look at, let, like, it's not going to be an easy, like, this is not a easy, I'm making millions of dollars. Like this is, you still have to do your research. You're starting a business, right? Yeah. So, um, and, and in that case, the permit was only a hundred dollars per year. So you just oh, wow. have to know your rules. You have to look at your regulations and it makes sense because you know, the county or the city wants a piece of action. So yes, pay your hundred dollars a year or whatever it is. So just look at ways that it still is a valid market. So, you know, that um, makes total so yeah, sense so that's because how I got into Airbnbs. It, it makes Go total ahead. sense because like you have to get a business license, you have to get permits for a business. So it's not really, I mean, they probably have to do that, but it's still just an additional expense and a hundred dollars is nothing. That's like so doable. I am inspired by this whole conversation because yes. I don't have a house. Yes. I don't own a house, but I'm going, okay, so I, I can do it with rental. So that sounds cool. Yeah. Yeah. You can do it with rentals and, you know, um, some, uh, to the point that like m my husband and I, um, next year when our kids are a little bit older, we'd like to go and uh, travel the world together and take our kids out of school and homeschool them and travel the world. And the idea that I can rent out my house and all of my houses. And then when I come back to the U S for maybe a month, we can just pick which one of our Airbnbs we want to stay in for the month and then we'll go back out, you know? So there's just really so much potential, um, with this style of living. Yeah. Um, I'm in. So yeah. So um, I'm down. <laughs> so then the Airbnbs. <laughs> so then the Airbnbs, and I, I want to be clear. I don't run a hundred Airbnbs. I don't. I don't have 
attend because Airbnbs is not actually all my income, right? So this is just one stream of income. My goal is for my properties to be averaging $1,000 that I net $1,000 per month per property. Now that's according to my area. Now some areas you can do better than that. Some are worse than that. I wouldn't, I would not invest in any area that you don't hope to make at least $700 net per month. Um, but I know that I just want 10 to 15 thousand dollars per month coming from this stream of income okay so as an investor you've got to think okay what other streams of income do i have and this is just one stream of income so some people are like well are you going to go bigger are you going to go to 50 are you going to go whatever no i like to be under 20 just to have that stream of income and that is easily easily manageable that i don't have to out i i do outsource part of it but i don't have to outsource all of it and so mm -hmm. the numbers still make sense but Airbnb is just one thing that I do. I still, you know, I'm a paid public speaker. I run my podcast. Um, so I, I go into train corporations and um, on how to um, effectively use their time. Um, so this is just, just, this is just one avenue, but it's been an awesome avenue that's been able to have my husband leave corporate America. So that's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, just, just some ideas of, it, it's such an easy way to get into real estate that, you know, sometimes when I tell a story, I talk about how, you know, in, during my ambition hangover that I had like set this goal of, I am going to climb that mountain right there. I can see it. And as soon as I was going to get to the top of the mountain of flipping houses, the view was going to be so amazing. It was going to be amazing. Um, and I finally, I had the courage that I had finally gotten to the base and it took my son being diagnosed with cancer for me to even get to the base of the mountain that I wanted to be on. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, then it, once I had the courage to start climbing the mountain, I started like, I had all the uh, you know, ambition, the energy, the adrenaline getting me to the top of the mountain of, I'm going to be an award-winning real estate investor. I'm going to be this, this, this. And I, I got up there and my husband likes to say that about this point when I was getting to the top and I was starting to see the view, but also wondering if the view was really what I thought it was going to be that an avalanche hit. And that oh, avalanche yeah. came in the form of lawsuits and drive-by shootings and um, sexual big harassment challenges. from the neighbors of people who were coming to try to buy our houses. Yeah, big challenges, right? Um, but when that avalanche happened, once I dug myself out, it was like, okay, what are my options? My options are to keep on going to the top, but I don't know if the view was what I wanted. I could go back down, but I was so afraid that if I went back down the mountain, that I would be stuck at the bottom again and wouldn't have the courage to get back on a mountain again. Mm -hmm. But then I like to say that at that point, the, I noticed that the avalanche had fallen and like made a path or like a bridge over to another mountain. And as I looked over to that other mountain, it's almost like I saw a whole valley of mountains that had opened up that I didn't even know were there when I first just saw the mountain of flipping houses or real estate investing mm -hmm. through flipping houses. But what it wasn't until I got up that mountain that I saw all this, this beautiful valley of different mountains I could be on. And I love that that avalanche, I look back at that avalanche time of my life. And although it still made me nauseous for a long time to think about I, I'm almost grateful for it because it was the bridge to get me to where I am today. And so that I could go over and start doing Airbnbs and I could start my podcast and I could start all these other things would not have come if I wouldn't have at least gotten on the mountain. So what do you think it's going to look like um, 10 years out from now? Because nobody was able to see coronavirus, right? Nobody saw that coming. So with that said, 
you know, how do you think this is going to impact your industry of either flipping or Airbnb or any of those types of things? What do you think? Yeah, it'll be really interesting just to see how hospitality in general um, is affected because so how long is it going to take for people to uh, travel at all? Now, for me, I, you know how I say I don't recommend starting with a house you own if unless you already have it but don't go and buy a house okay one of my other things that I recommend is for your first property is to do it in a place that is not a vacation centric um, location when I say that none of my properties if you walk outside of any of my properties you will not see a single palm tree you will not see a beach all of my properties are based around four things airports universities hospitals, airports, universities, and hospitals. So, um, so those are, those are the places that I, so it's not a vacation centric. It doesn't have to be a vacation centric industry. Now, the point that we're at now, it's like, ah, we kind of want a place in Hawaii. Let's go get an Airbnb there. So when we go, we have a place to go, you know, or whatever it is. So you can get there, but I don't recommend starting that at that location, at, that, at those types of location. And that's one of the reasons we've been able to stay over 80% occupied during coronavirus is because we're not a vacation industry. Some of my friends that are have vacation industries, they're really, really struggling right now. Mm. Uh, so back to your question of 10 years from now. Well, first off, in any industry, I think there is a huge movement. When I look at my parents, my parents were in a level of uh, you get a job, you get a good stable job, and you just hang in there and grow and move up the corporate yeah. ladder. But that's yeah. not what life is anymore. And you know what I'm saying? And in 10 years from now, it's even going to be leaving that even more. And so I think that's why it's so important that, uh, that people stop dreaming and start doing because that's where life is going in 10 years. And you don't want to be left behind of not following your passions. In this day and age, and definitely in 10 years from now, it's going to be okay for you to be able to align your passions with the way, way you earn money. Your lifestyle. Like that's going to be yeah. like a must. Yeah. yeah. That it's Personal you, and work That you live that merge. intentional lifestyle. Yes. Yes. To have that merging and alignment of those. And so I, I, that would be my biggest thing, whether it's in real estate or not. Um, I think so many different um, industries have been affected by this, but no matter what industry you're in, making sure that you find joy in the way that you bring money. Mm -hmm. Now that, that could be corporate America. That could be working for someone else. I don't want you to think that you're listening to me and saying, in fact, one time I went and spoke at somewhere and they knew I was coming and, and, and she came up to me afterwards and was like, I love you. After the last time I heard you, heard you speak, she had heard me speak a few months earlier. She's like, I went and I left my job the next week. And it was, I, I did it. And I was like, oh, can you get your job back? Like, what's going on? Like, no, 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 no. So I don't want you that I'm saying providing is not important. Let me just go voyage as a millennial or whatever it yeah. is, right? But no, like be smart about it, but don't be afraid to chase your dreams and do what you need to do to make your dreams part of the way that you make money and find yeah, you know it's part of the story so yeah. that 20 years from now i think that people just like what you're saying i think that they're still going to be uh, traveling they're going to be working remotely especially now i mean that's going to be a given uh that people will do that but there are also those that like yeah. the uh being 
rooted, having a, a home base. So the ability to use a home as a, as a place where you can kind of travel, it used to be that people would have timeshares, right? And it's, I guess Airbnb right. is a bit of a timeshare variation, just cooler name. Um, so, yeah, definitely. you know, it, it probably hasn't changed that much, just the name of it and a little bit about what it looks like. But I, I really think that it's going to be a much more trending industry and something that millennial and Gen Z will totally embrace. You know, before coronavirus, and I hope, I hope we get back to where this was, but I felt like so many more people were having that work from anywhere mentality yeah. um, of, uh, you know, whether you're a graphic designer or whatever, that, that work from anywhere mentality of, yeah, you know what, I want to go spend the next six months in Spain and work from there or whatever it is. And Airbnb totally aligns with that. Like one of my friends that I just had on my podcast here recently, um, she has lived in seven different countries and she has five kids also. Um, and they've lived in, um, Kuala Lumpur. They've lived in um, Dublin. Right now they live in Australia. And she, what you were talking about, she felt like it's been fun. We've traveled the world, but I wanted a home base. And yeah. so they came back to the States and bought a house just to have a home base. They lived in it for three weeks and then they moved again, but they just huh. like knowing they have a house somewhere. So yeah. uh, I teased her because she, you know, that's her only Airbnb right now, but she's like, but I want, I didn't want to get a one year renter in there because what if I want to come home in two months? Like what if I, I want that grounding? Yeah. And so being able to be an Airbnb host provides that as an option. Yeah, I definitely see that. And I really think that that's going to continue, like how people can rent out their garage if you need a place for storage. I mean, uh, people are learning how to live, I think, a minimal lifestyle because of that. Minimalist, for sure. Yeah. Um, tiny houses yeah. are popular. You know, you can live anywhere. And it's just really taking what you need, not everything that you think you want. You know, it's just stuff. And if we leave the stuff yeah. behind, we're focusing on the experience and the experience is who we're with and where we are. Anyway, okay, yes. so what would a typical yes. day look like for an intern to work with you in your business? Oh, I love that. And I have loved my interns. When I was flipping houses, I had interns um, with Airbnbs, I've had interns. Um, and the, the answer is like so many different things. Um, and my interns have done anything from help me set up Airbnbs and like sometimes they get some not fun work of like, or when I am flipping houses, they have to help me. A lot of the houses we flipped were nasty, really, oh, really nasty clean quarter houses that we had to clean out. And so I would have my interns help me with the clean outs, but they were memorable. And because I like to work side by side on that, because I don't want my interns getting injured or anything like that. Um, or at least with a member of my team. Um, so it goes anything from like grunt, like yucky work like that, mm -hmm. but then also, um, you know, using, I've had them create commercials for me for my speaking business and also commercials for Airbnbs. Um, and, but then also doing graphic design work for my podcast right. or um, uh, creating new maps and interactive, like adding QR codes and different things so that when you arrive in the Airbnb, they can QR code to know where the closest uh, restaurant is and yep. our recommendations and using their awesome technological brain of all the great ways that you can easily instead of because 
you know, with Airbnb guests, they want to know where are the best restaurants, where's the closest grocery store, you know, and so just creating ways to make that easier for our guests. That was Milana Hawk, expert on making an income from Airbnbs. Thank you for listening to our Best of 2020 show.